Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Each week, we want to be able to bring guests or information or topics or strategies to transform your life and help you to live on purpose, and this week is no different. I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, we are blessed, no less, to have my good friend, Dr. Ray Williams, on the call with us here, and Ray and I go uh, back quite a ways. In fact, I've been was he was kind enough to ask me to endorse his book, The Eye of the Storm. He's also author of other sto- books as well. So, Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure being here and uh, being able to connect with you again, uh, always. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and this is not really to kind of puff Ray up, but he's one of the nicest people that I've ever met. And we've certainly enjoyed our times, uh, a couple of times having dinner with you and Diane, your wife, and, and our uh, good friend Stephanie Frank, that really I'm responsible for introducing her to you. So I take credit for that relationship as you co-author some books and information uh, in curriculum with her. So, Ray, you know, we always start the show with trying to get a sense of uh, your expertise, where you're at. Uh, I mean, you have a doctorate degree. You have been in this industry of professional development for well over 30 years. One of the top executive coaches, uh, really, in Western Canada and, and you know, wherever that might be. What was your journey? What, what were the steps or where did you go, Ray, to kind of get into this field uh, where you're at now? Yeah, thanks Thanks for the question, Ken. Um, it's been a, an interesting kind of journey, and uh, and I think more and more careers uh, are like this where you, you bounce from one career to another. It becomes more the norm now. But back in my day, that was pretty unusual. But I started out in, in education and uh, um, was a high school principal at a really early age and then a superintendent of schools and kind of left that fairly uh, young and then established my own consulting business um, and uh, during the course of my consulting business uh, saw the opportunity to move into coaching which really really was a, an attraction uh, in terms of both the, the kinds of things you could do and the impact you could make and uh, been doing that for oh quite a few years now and along the way had an opportunity to do lots of writing for publications um, and my own books as well so uh, kind of variety of variety of experience but always in the field of uh, trying to help others in one form or another in terms of success in life um, uh, self uh, improvement um, fulfillment happiness um, sort of that whole realm and just helping people to realize their potential and give them uh the strategies, the insights to be able to go to that next, that next level. Um, now, exactly. go ahead, sorry. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and you know, that's part of the, the role of a coach is not necessarily to give advice so much as to, uh, to assist people with the tools and strategies to get there themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Now, at the peril of self-disclosure, 
Uh, we should let the audience know that, Ray, you were uh, kind enough to give us the foreword uh, to our book, Deliberate Leadership. And I also have endorsed your book and gave you a quote for Eye of the Storm. Now, we'll come to the book in a little bit. But I want to spend a few minutes, because you're also one of our licensed associates. You've used the personal style indicator, the values preference indicator, a fair amount over the years really to serve your clients. But because you work in this um, sort of higher-end leadership in individuals who are CEOs or general managers or owners of you know, medium to large-sized companies, what is it that you're finding out there? What, what, are, what is sort of the core needs, I don't want to call it deficiencies, but, but gaps in these leaders that you have been working on for the years that seem to be com- a common thread or a common area or opportunity for them to improve? What are some of the things that you have discovered that your experience is showing working with all these leaders? And that, that's a good question, Ken. And uh, first of all, I wanted to you know mention to people, listeners, uh, and to give you a, a plug is that with all of my clients, um, and you know probably had a couple hundred by now um, of clients, most of whom are, see, as you mentioned, CEOs or vice presidents or business owners. Um, the core thing I do right at the beginning of the coaching process is to administer. Uh, the values assessment and the personal style assessment um, that uh, that you provide because I think they're such great tools to start opening up a dialogue with mm-hmm. a client about about that improvement. So it's it's kind of the core of the beginning of of what I do uh, with my clients and and you know it's it's a basic staple. So I wanted to give you that kudos for developing. <laughs> Thank you, and of course I'll I'll agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> no bias. The I used, no, right, exactly. The other thing I use is I use what's called the EQI assessment, which is one of the most reliable, scientifically supported assessment tools to uh, take a look at emotional intelligence, which leads to answering the question. The most common thing that I find is, um, which is a challenge for senior leaders, even people being around a long time, <clears throat> is uh, a self-awareness. And either a lack of self-awareness or a desire to increase that self-awareness. And what I mean by self-awareness is, do they see themselves the same way that other people see them? And are they aware of their internal state uh, during the course of dealing with issues or people? So that, that's one kind of core area. The second core area in working with these clients is self-management. How do they manage themselves, particularly in, in stressful situations? How do they respond? What are their reactions like? How do they make decisions? How do they make choices? Um, and so a combination of self-awareness and self-management really are two of the key areas that are in common with almost all of the um, clients that I've dealt with uh, over the last couple of decades. Well, it's interesting, Ray. You know, my wife works in a university now, and her favorite word for her students that she coaches as an academic coach is a thing called metacognition, is one's actually awareness of what one is doing. So even though we have these, um, you know, significantly achieved individuals in these senior positions, you're suggesting that there's still sort of there's a gap between their perception of self and what others think they are or maybe not even knowledge of what they're doing. 
Yeah, it can, it can exist at both levels. First of all, they can be completely oblivious to the, the impact they're making on other people or even the impact they're making on themselves, not just other people. Well, explain uh, that or, one, the impact they're making on themselves. Uh, yeah. Where does that come into play? That comes into play when they, they make choices to uh, develop a negative mindset or a closed mindset, not realizing that by uh, developing a negative or closed mindset and dealing with issues of people, what they're doing is they're actually restricting their choices in life, which can then subsequently um, show up as uh, restricting their choices in their career, their relationships with other people, um, but not be actually conscious of that. So that's really an internal state is, you know, am I aware of the fact that I'm doing this? And that can take the form of their thinking processes, but it can also take the form of um, their emotional states. Now, you, Marshall Goldsmith endorsed or did the foreword of your, of your book, and he was kind enough to you know, endorse our book as well, uh, as well as I've interviewed Jim Cousins, so two great, you know, one a coach, one a leadership expert. I, how do these people who really don't have this self-awareness get into these senior positions, Ray? What's, That's a good question. How does this happen? <laughs> you know, the, the, the reality is that we have uh, a lot of people um, in politics, as uh, probably a lot of people are aware right now, who are in politics or successful in business that um, are there by virtue of a lot of dysfunctional thinking and emotional practices. We have people that are psychopaths and sociopaths an extreme narcissist who have actually been, uh, quote, in quotation marks, successful as, as measured by the amount of money they make or the fact that um, they uh, have developed in a very successful company. So partly the, the difficulty is how we kind of define what success is, but there's no question there's dysfunctional people that have been successful in our society because they either um, are manipulative or they have learned how to manipulate the system. Mm. What does that say to our whole system out there? Yeah, well, it really, you know, it kind of questions what we value and what we reward. Um, and, and I wrote a piece for Psychology Today and, and the Financial Post where I talk about w- what we want is really humble uh, leaders who care about other people, but what we actually end up promoting is people who often are uh, self-centered and narcissistic. So we, we're, you know, we either we're hypocrites or we're not rewarding the right people. Um, and that's partly because of a, a stereotype of leadership. What you need is, a, you know, um, a man who's six foot two with a broad chin and who's aggressive and dominating, and that's our definition of leadership. Are we still there? Are we still in this kind of unfortunate mindset? Um, I think to a large extent, yeah. There's been a study that shows, you know, the average CEO in North America is about six foot two, and he's a man, um, and uh, he's middle-aged, and that's still the norm. It's not... So, Ray, you and I not, wouldn't qualify, and no, people don't wouldn't. know, but both of us are shorter than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you don't see a lot of, of short, bald people, and you don't see a lot of women. <clears throat> That's the other thing. So, and, but in fact, if you know, take a look at a Harvard study and MIT study and other studies, 
they've been able to identify that um, in the long term, a lot of introverted, quiet, humble leaders um, actually are the most successful if you look at the long term. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a new book out called uh, Givers and Takers. And yeah. so and the, it just shows that takers can have a lot quicker start, but later on, uh, everybody around them wants to undermine their success because they, they're right. always being manipulated by them versus givers who might start slower, but later on, everybody comes and rallies around them and wants to help them. Right, and, and unfortunately, the, <clears throat> the system, the structure we have, um, really facilitates the takers because it's short-term. So what we have now is that CEOs are very commonly measured, uh, their success is measured on quarterly results of their company. It's not measured on the 10-year results of the company. If you go back to you know, the, the 1950s, there were, there were executives in there for the long term. So you had CEOs that would be long-serving. Well, so they build now the compensation and golden handshakes for CEOs based upon an assumption that likelihood is they're not going to be there very long. Now, my understanding is, is that the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 CEOs, the, the term, the life expectancy of them is less than 24 months now. Is that correct? Yeah, it's about 24 months to, to three years, and it's, so it has been going down globally, but particularly in North America. So That's part so, of that. So, yeah, so what you've got is two things feeding each other. One of them is you can be um, uh, a stereotypic male-dominating um, you know, uh, type of leader who doesn't really care about employees and focuses on short-term results, because you know that within three years you're probably gone. And then you're so going to get a multi-million dollar share buyout anyways. So yeah. uh, why, why would I want to worry about it? And I hear what you're saying there. Now, let, let's just kind of digress because we don't want to depress everybody at the other end of this. Well, I was just going to say, Because we're going to move into you know, the positive side, and I'll talk about your yeah. book here in a little bit. But when you're doing the EQ assessment, what are some of the emotional intelligences that are uh, deficient in some of these individuals? And then what are you having to coach towards? I think the two most common uh, deficiencies are um, empathy and compassion um, uh, and interdependence in the sense that um, we often think of empathy and compassion that a CEO or a senior executive may have for employees. So that's a soft thing. It's, you know, it's really not necessary. You have to make the tough decisions. And, but in fact, there's a pretty good amount of research now that shows that that leaders who are compassionate and empathetic with their employees, in addition to being good decision makers, it's not an either-or thing, um, that uh, those employees uh, are found to be much more willing to make a commitment and be loyal and go beyond the requirements for uh, working in that organization. So I would say empathy, compassion are two of the biggest ones that come out of EQ that um, usually show up as a deficiency if there's a problem. Okay. And so then, I mean, obviously these people, thank you, Ray, uh, obviously these people are paying you to coach. So are you seeing uh, breakthroughs with some of these people who maybe haven't considered this before, and then once you open their eyes, they say, 
oh, okay, well, maybe I'm going to consider this, and then you're able to move them. What, what sort of the success rate or results are you getting from working with individuals in this, in this space? Um, yeah, I'm really happy with the success rate I, I've had, and you know, I don't say it's all attributable to me because they're the ones doing the work, but I would say the success rate is you know, um, well over 80%. When, so, so the first step is they have to recognize I, and, and admit, I think I have a problem. So that's the first thing. Second thing is we then go through the process of, okay, w- let's talk about what is the nature of the problem um, that, that you're facing. And then we talk about, okay, what are the strategies we can undertake where you can address that so that area um, improves? And, and um, so my experience has been, and a, a good example is a, a major bank client I've had, um, a couple CFOs, uh, a CEO, a couple of vice presidents. They've all, um, as a result of the EQ assessment, following the, the two um, assessments uh, from your company, uh, identified the, the area of, of empathy and uh, compassion as uh, a problem they they were committed to working on it. We worked on together on strategies on how they could do that, and within a six month period, there is a significant improvement. So you know, I'm a real believer that uh, uh, with the right motivation, these people can change. And, and you know, we're talking about people in their their early 40s, uh, uh, early 50s. Well, it's interesting, Ray, because you know I've done. You know, numerous. I do this podcast every week. It seems like every other guest is talking about people's lack of self-awareness uh, mm-hmm. as as a core contributor to the conditions that we face. Um, with so much data, so much information, what do you think could be the reasons that people are not really owning this space of self-awareness? I'm just like yeah, a little befuddled or bewildered yeah. that people are not, not grounded and centered in this stuff. I, I think there's a, a number of contributing factors, that, part of which I think has been uh, what's happened in our society in the last uh, uh, couple decades, which has focused so much on um, self-interest, um, uh, a lack of uh, understanding of, how every decision I make will impact other people and our environment. Um, and, and so the focus has been, and you can see that reflected in you know, television shows and movies, is about um, uh, satisfying your desires um, and the kinds of things that you want in life, regardless of what the consequences are. So, so I think when you do that, and when you grow up where that's emphasized, uh, it's not surprising that they have a lack of self-awareness. Yet there is a move now around social impact and social conscious and social uh, responsibility, and there seems to be some some things moving the needle. Is it not? I I agree, and this is where you know I've addressed the positive side. So it doesn't sound like oh we're going to hell on a handbasket. <laughs> um, is uh, yeah, I see real positive signs. The fact that these companies uh, want to bring me in, and these executives want to work in these areas uh, um, related to what we would call the soft skills, I think is a real positive thing. I don't know that I would have seen that uh, 10, 15 years ago. 
So and we there, we've known each other that long, and this really your yeah. your your expertise as an executive coach really has um, you know grown since that time when we got to know each other about twelve or thirteen years ago. So uh, obviously mm-hmm. it, it grew a lot from that decade yeah. or so ago, and people's consciousness on that area, and just even even just ownership of the impact of that. Well, let's just transition, Ray, and then we can go back and forth through this, too. I mean, you wrote the book, The Eye of the Storm. I, you know, my comment in here is that you did the research. You, you're just a research king. You went and looked at all these different uh, data points and, and analysis and what's going on. And really, you, you talked about the toxic environment, which we've sort of muddled in a little bit already from a, an individual point of view. But one of the pages in your book really talks about traditional responses to a workplace problem, problems, which is like employee manuals and EAP programs, et cetera. Uh, help me understand what's wrong with those things, or, 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 or is there anything wrong with them? Well, I don't think you know, there's anything wrong with them. It, it's just that they, they were seen as a, a simplistic solution that addresses the symptoms of what the difficulty is. So, um, for example, to to have an employee assistance program where you have provisions for people um, if they're on stress leave to get some particular um, help um, as a result of the fact that they're on stress leave or they're experiencing some uh, health problems related to stress, which is the number one reason why people usually go on medical leave, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that's addressing the symptoms. The issue is what's causing the stress that makes them want to go on stress leave. An EAP program doesn't address that. It only helps to uh, mitigate uh, once the the occurrence has happened. So uh, exactly. In your, so then, in your opinion, is if we think about the global picture now. And for everybody that's listening, you know, if small business or not, uh, all these principles apply. Is you know, what are what are what are some of the historical things that have created this, as you called it in your book, a toxic corporation or a toxic workplace? So, what are some of those? And then what? And then we'll move into your recommendations in the book. Yeah, and, and I can't, certainly can't give all of them, but a couple of key ones is I, Ray. I want you to give them all. Come on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll give as many as I can. Um, so there, there are some signs that it, it exist. So, for example, one of the signs of you know a toxic environment where you're not really addressing the causes but you're addressing the symptoms is a belief by the owners and management that employees are an expense, not an asset. Mm. Okay, just uh, if you just think that way, it changes the way you organize your work and how you deal with people or that um, the way to motivate people is using the carrot and the stick. Either you punish them or you reward them financially and that motivates people. Okay. That's another assumption that leads to a toxic environment. Um, And the research clearly shows that in fact, the carrot and the stick is not a long-term motivator for people. Um, The same thing is true of performance reviews. Lots of evidence now to show that performance reviews do not improve performance, yet we continue to do them. So, um, the, uh, uh, and the approach of management is that I'm going to supervise you and watch you and monitor your 
your work as opposed to saying, I trust you to be able to do your work independently, and I'm going to demonstrate that trust by not watching you all the time. So, you know, those are some examples of principles that create a different kind of work culture. <clears throat> well, it's interesting, Ray. This, I, I, I want to stick with that one of the first right? ones you said is my mindset, you know, as the owner, as the person cutting the check at the end of the month, I need to be thinking about this as an investment in the business, as an asset in the business, not somebody who is an expense. So how does that exactly. shift my response to creating a better work environment if I move my headspace from expense to asset? What, what did you find out? Yeah, so where, what I found out and where um, companies have done this, and there, there are more and more that you know, have moved in this direction, is, okay, well, if employees are an asset, how do I invest in this asset to protect the asset, to make sure I don't lose this asset, that, um, that I'm nurturing this asset? Okay, now that raises some questions. Okay, how do I nurture my employees? How do I protect my employees? And, and it would be everything from uh, workplace bullying uh, policies. Okay, nobody gets bullied in, and, and uh, harassed in this workplace, and, and uh, you have a policy for it, and there... There are consequences when that happens. Bullying in the workplace is, is rampant throughout uh, North America, and it's growing. So <clears throat> when you see employees as... Now, hang on. You just said, you said it was growing. I thought we were like attacking bullying in all levels and et cetera. You're saying it's increasing? Well, according to the Workplace Bullying Institute, this, the stats they have in the Pew Center uh, research study, they've seen that it is growing. Um, and often it's because we see examples that are portrayed in, in media and politics and, you know, universities that don't have sexual harassment uh, regulations or, or policies. So um, it's, it, it is not being addressed sufficiently. I think in some jurisdictions and some companies, they've really been bold and moving in that direction. It's not uniform. Interesting, Ray. I just want to interject one. I had a conversation with an individual who's attending our certification next week. Uh, She's got her PhD as well, and she, um, her podium that she's standing on is that she believes one of the most um, egregious places where bullying occurs is in schools not between mm-hmm. the kids, but from the teachers to the students. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she's verifying that. So here's education trying to teach us not to be bullying, but her research shows is that one of the most um, offensive places of bullying is, is, an, is in education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now yeah. you have that as a grounding as, of, of my behavioral sort of norms. So anyways, mm-hmm. I just want to throw that in. That. Yeah. <laughs> No, there will be more of that research coming on that we can support for you. Yeah. Um, so to go back to, to that issue, then, if you, the question you asked is if you treat your employees as assets, you then have a whole bunch of policies and approaches that are very different than if you see them only as an expense. Mm. So rather than exactly. trying to cut everything, you really, as you said, I'm trying to protect this person. It gets me thinking about like a racehorse. You know, if you have a racehorse, you don't want to chintz out on the food. You don't want to have, like, a stable where they get pneumonia. You don't want to have, <laughs> you know, poor training. You want them to win, right? 
So what would right. you do? You, you would give them the best that you could. Yeah, exactly. Instead um, of and, this employee, okay, we're going to do this opposite. So I get that. That's it's you know such a simple concept, Ray, but so powerful if you're just shifting your mindset there. And am I treating my you know employees as an asset? And so I just want everybody right. to kind of think about that. And even from a family point of view or a small business point of view, are you do you have that mindset? So then, what was what right. was next? In that list, I think the other one was the um, the the not use the carrot and stick approach for motivating your your employees, um, which then changes the nature of uh, whether a workplace is uh, toxic or not. So um, traditional thought is that um, you're an employee of mine. The way I will get you to work harder and uh, um, do more for for me or the company is uh, give you incentives. So the most common incentive, well, you know, what I'll do is I'll give you a bonus, give you a financial bonus, or I'll increase your your salary. Uh, Based upon the assumption that um, if I do that, you will work harder and produce a better job and your productivity will go up. There is no research that I've seen that supports that assumption. However... Interesting, Ray, but most of us on the street would think that it does. It, it may for a short period of time, for a period of weeks or, or a year. The problem with any kind of extri- extrinsic um, uh, reinforcement is that it can only have an effect temporary or you have to escalate it. You have to um, improve it again. Um, mm. So they did a, a three-part study, London School of Economics, the Federal Reserve Bank, um, and MIT did a study of, of how do financial rewards improve productivity uh, for employees. And all three of them came to the conclusion that they do not. And there's three very different research studies. So um, you know, I trust the, the kind of work that they have done. So, what, so if you can't use financial rewards as an enticement to improve productivity or success of an employee, what do you do instead? Well, the research points to, and you can look at the work of Daniel Pink as an example of that, mm-hmm. points to intrinsic rewards, which means things like recognition, independence, <clears throat> uh, allowing employees to uh, uh, have some control over the nature of their job, uh, making sure that they see a meaningful connection between what they're doing and the success of the company or the organization, those are all intrinsic things. Um, and really smart companies like, like Google, for example, they, they understand these principles and they've incorporated them and put them into practice. So being able to really get to the, uh, pardon the pun, the heart of the matter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, intrinsic motivation, not ex- extrinsic. The other piece of that, so that's the carrot. The other piece of it is the stick. Um, if you don't, if you don't work hard for me, we will punish you by demoting you, by reducing your salary, by reducing your hours, by laying you off, as though that somehow will be a motivator for you to do more work. Like, well, again, is that punishment has rarely been shown as a motivator for people to improve their performance. Mm. And. Um 
you know, interesting, it's, it's sort of that fear thing. You know, if I can yeah, incite yeah. fear into you, then I can get you uh, doing more. But except for maybe my fear of my life, that's, that's not, <laughs> it's not going to be successful. <laughs> Uh, well, so, fear, yep, fear yep. for short periods of time, fear for short periods of time, you know, will work, but not on a sustained basis. And, you know, and you it's think so it, hard to manage because you have to have this constant sort of pressure on it. It's just weary for the person trying to cause the fear, and they don't even get it that that is destructive to them. The other one oh, that yes, you mentioned absolutely. here is this whole idea around this uh, supervisory mindset. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, as an owner and a person who has employed uh, numerous people, uh, dozens over, you know, 30 years, um, sometimes one of my uh, greatest difficulty, Ray, has been that I give freedom to people and then they really kind of, it, it crashes and, and big mistakes are made and costly mistakes are made. So how does a person balance this, you know, providing independence and really removing the supervisory stuff that I trust you and still making sure that there's checks and balances so that things are being done uh, correctly in an accountable manner. Yeah, I think that that's a valid point. And uh, it's the difference between accountability and, and each employee taking responsibility for their behavior in their work, which is an absolute, versus micromanaging them so they have no ownership over their work. Um, the the two are polar opposites. So um, if they're used to being micromanaged and being told what to do all the time, independence of action and the likelihood or the possibility of sloppy work and mistakes actually increases. Uh, but if instead... Explain that. A, if, so well, if I micromanage, um, you're saying the likelihood of mistakes increases. Help me understand that. Well, what, what's their investment and in ownership uh, of the work they do? Because they're constantly being told what it is they have to do with no trust being given in them that they have the ability um, or the, the tools to be able to either figure that out themselves or to do it uh, on their own without being told what to do. So you think of yourself, you know, would you like to be – uh, micromanage where, where, you know, if I was your coach, I would be telling you exactly what to do every day. So I own my own business for 30 years, Ray, so nobody can tell me what to do. <laughs> but we often, <laughs> That's style-based, but it's also, yeah, no way. I mean, you know, Brent and I have been married for 25 years, and if there's a, you know, a thing that still is our irritant here is trying to tell each other what to do. Nobody likes it. Never. Nobody never. likes it. So, so while employees may be compliant and look like they have to be told what to do, now there's there's a difference. If you're hiring a new employee and they're new to the company, you may have to give some more specific guidance and and directions in that. But at some point, you have to communicate to them. I trust that you are going to exercise good judgment and figure this out yourself. And uh, I know that you can do this. Uh, and when they get those messages they take a lot more ownership over their work. What's interesting, you, you know, what you're saying is really around, if I'm micromanaged, I acquiesce my responsibility for the outcome because you're telling me what it's going to be. 
So, mm-hmm. so I'm not paying attention. It's kind of like, I've never used this uh, metaphor before, but it's kind of like when you start following your GPS and you're not paying attention. And we had some friends the other day, they, they, they're gone across the border and the GPS was wrong. So, and the guy said, how'd you get here? So I followed the GPS. Do you want to go into the United States? So no, I don't. So, so there's a major mistake where they're just driving down the road and they're not even owning it because this GPS is telling them what to do. So that would be an example of uh, if they were driving on their own, no way they would have got there. That exercise judgment. There was a great uh, snippet in that wonderful series called The Office where where uh, Michael, who's the office manager, is in there with Dwight in the car, and he's following GPS, and he keeps saying, no, keep going this way, keep going this way. And he says, yeah, but there's a lake in front. And he says, ignore that. Just keep going this way. <laughs> they drive into the lake. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there we go, for sure. One of the chapters in your book, uh, Ray, is around this mindlessness at work. What do you mean mm-hmm. by that? Well, first of all, um, uh, stepping back even uh, another 10 feet is just mindlessness in general. Um, the, the older we get, the more we are on what's called autopilot. So what autopilot is, is that we actually don't think about what we're doing. We rely upon the memory, our memories, to just do things automatically. And a good example would be, you know, riding a bike. You don't actually have to think about what you're doing. But one of the ways to, to kind of measure mindlessness is, you know, you're brushing your teeth in the morning, you're taking a shower, you're driving somewhere, and you just realize you, you drove three blocks past your destination. But you were paying attention to your driving. You were, you were basically going on, on memory. So around, you know, the time we're 35, 40, most of what we are going to experience in life, we've already experienced it. Um, and there's a memory about that. So when we encounter a new situation that's similar, uh, our brain wants to rely upon the memory because your brain wants to be efficient and not have to work too hard. So it relies on the memory of how to do that. So translated into our work and even our relationships in life, we go around almost in an unconscious state um, and our behavior is based upon our memories as opposed to consciously thinking, I've never been here before, I've never encountered this before, I've got to figure this out. So, so if you then have everybody in the organization walking around and doing things mindlessly, that's where you end up with these gigantic bureaucratic snafus that we, you know, we've read so much about, um, or crazy mistakes um, that you know could end up in real safety problems because people were just not conscious of what they're doing. So that's what I mean by mindlessness. So, you know, Ray, we have about, you know, five minutes or so left in the show. If you were to coach me and coach the listeners around, you know, moving forward and, and just overcoming some of the how to transform ourselves but also transform the workplace, what are your recommendations and closing remarks to us for the next few minutes? Right. Um, thank you for that. Uh, well, a couple of things. First, at, at the personal level. Um, for people both in their personal life and also their work life is that I think um, um, building into your life a process of reflection 
Uh, and that reflection means things like, what's my purpose in life here? What's my calling? What should I be doing on this earth that is significant? And, and by that, I don't mean defining a job. I just mean a much bigger, higher level thing. Is what's my purpose here? Um, and, and being clear about that and then uh, using that clarity to be able to define, well, if that's, that's the case, then, you know, have I got a personal mission? And what's that personal mission? And, okay, given that, um, what's the kind of work that would support that mission? What kind of relationships will I have in my life that will support that mission? And that, that I think, becomes a personal guide for you and how you live day-to-day as a person. But it also becomes a guide in terms of what kind of company am I going to work for? What, what's the nature of uh, the kind of boss that I'm prepared to, to work with and the co- colleagues I'm to work with? So it becomes a guide in making those, those decisions. And, and then um, embarking upon a path of, of self-discovery where you increase your self-awareness. You learn how to manage your emotions and regulate your emotions effectively. You, um, you, you develop a, a philosophy um, and way of living that incorporates uh, compassion and empathy for people and at the same time, you know, stand up for the principles that, that you believe in. They're going to make... Uh, your life, uh, other people's lives, the community, and the world a better place. Awesome. And uh, if I was to now transfer that to organizations and companies, you know, beyond what you've said right now, what would you say to us? What I, what I would say is that um, we have to start seeing the purpose of organizations, whether it's uh, uh, public or or a private private as having multiple purposes um, in other words so in particular because I work almost exclusively in the private sector uh, rather than government and, and so in the private sector that means that the purpose is not just financial gain for investors and shareholders that narrow focus um, has caused excesses and much damage to the business world and, and society in general. But rather that see that business has multiple purposes and functions, which include, yes, financial reward for shareholders and, and investors, but it also means uh, providing uh, a positive place for people to work where they can be productive and be contributors, which means care of employees. And then thirdly, is to um, uh, have some sense of social justice and uh, concern for the environment so that no damage is being done. So I think, think organizations, and there, there are you know, more and more of them, are using those three things as a guide for this is the purpose of our organization. And, and so we'll be measured against all three of those things, not just one of them. And in your experience now that you've been working with some of these companies, are they, I guess sometimes the concern is from the uninformed, the short-term view, that if I was to take this holistic perspective, it's going to cost me, meaning I'm not going to have that financial success that I can drive right now. What has your experience been with you know, taking the long-term view about the long-term success of the company? Well, I, I think that there, there are more and more companies that uh, are prepared to do that, 
we just don't hear their success stories maybe, uh, you know, enough. And, you know, to quote some examples where uh, prominent companies who have taken that approach, Southwest Airlines, um, Whole Foods um, are, are two examples. Um, to a lesser degree, a company like Procter & Gamble, where at least two of the three areas are something that they're totally committed to. Uh, we're seeing that happen with Google and, and some, you know, some Silicon Valley companies as well who, uh, who believe that all three of those things have to be supported, and yet at the same time, they're making money. You know, they're, they're not going broke, um, and they're doing well financially. So it's possible. It's a bit like the example is at one point solar energy <clears throat> was seen as being prohibitive because of the cost. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it's considerably cheaper than oil and, and gas in terms of its development and, and look at the difference in the impact. Uh, because of the progress of technology and all the different yes. components that fit into it. So, exactly. uh, yeah, of course, it, it pays for us. The other one is, um, you know, my experience in having an MBA is that a lot, of, a lot of companies never put on their books what is not in the statement, meaning if I have significant turnover, that the cost of turnover never makes the books. It doesn't mm-hmm. show me the cost of turnover. It's not in the, in the accounting ledger, ledger as far as human capital or intellectual capital lost. Yeah, I got another person and I maybe had a cost of placement. But the fact that I lost a senior person because of the environment that they're working in, that nobody ever accounted for that. No, that's right. Um, it's a, the, at the much bigger scale, it's the, the measurement of GDP. <clears throat> There's no... Uh, provision for a measurement of GDP for are people happy in this country? Uh, what's the no, the nature of the social net in this this country as a measurement? Mm. It's mm. only economic measures. So is it really an accurate measure? Stress in the U.S. costs the based on the U.S. Department of Labor. Just for your curiosity, <laughs> is seventy five hundred dollars per employee per year is the stress-related mm-hmm. cost, or I think there's $300 billion or something like that. So, yeah, uh, so that huge. is significant Yeah, as far as the cost and that. Now, Ray, I sure appreciate you spending time with us. If people want to find out about your services, your expertise as a coach, a person developing leadership within a company, how might they get a hold of you? I think the easiest way <clears throat> is me. I think the easiest way is to go to my website, raywilliams.ca, um, and, uh, um, or just to look me up on LinkedIn. And uh, uh, there's some contact info in both cases there. And it will include also uh, uh, the publications that I write for uh, on a regular basis and, and where you can get my books as well. Well, Ray, I sure appreciate you hanging out with us today. Hey, it's been my pleasure. It's a great discussion we had. <laughs> and for everybody that's listening, um, how mindful leaders can transform chaotic workplaces, go online and get that from Ray. Call him, find out if you're a senior executive. Uh, you know, uh, Ray can help you with that uh, coaching. You know, as we mentioned at the end of each show, if you like what we're doing, we sure appreciate it if you could share it, if you could pass it on. Uh, We thank you for spending the most valuable thing that you have with us, and that's your time. And hopefully we were able to uh, provide you 
some insights, some thoughts, uh, something to ponder. Take what Ray said, you know, be mindful, be aware. Uh, and if you're not aware, uh, just seek out some help to be able to establish that. Well, as always, I want to thank you for listening to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keith. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com, scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.